So Money, episode 454, Douglas McCormick, author of Family Inc. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 84 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. The drag-and-drop editor. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your website today. The result is stunning. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, we're talking about how to run your family like a business with the author of the new book, Family Inc., Using Business Principles to Maximize Your Family's Wealth. And Douglas McCormick, the author, he is here to talk about the roadmap to financial security for families, given this premise that your family should be run like a business. And he has spent two decades managing money for institutional clients and high net worth families. He's helped them grow their businesses to create sustainable, long long-term value. He's also currently a managing partner at HCI Equity, a company that he also co-founded. So with Douglas, I'm curious, um, why does he think that every family needs a chief financial officer or CFO? And who's the best person to play this role? With news of the UK's vote for Brexit, what does he think that'll mean for our investment portfolios? And the gift that he gives his children every Christmas to help them learn about the financial world. Here is Douglas McCormick. Douglas McCormick, welcome to So Money. Curious to learn how to run my family as a business. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Congratulations on Family Inc., your latest book, your first book, right? It is. It's my first and probably my last. Right. Why do you say that? Um, you know, I think um, I felt like I had something to say for this book and I feel like I've accomplished it. And so I'll have to be, I guess, uh, you know, compelled by the next opportunity. But um you know, for now, I feel like uh, I'm pretty proud of um, the content of the book, and I'm hopeful it can make a big impact for folks. Well, you know, it's refreshing to hear that because I think a lot of times, especially authors, you write your first book, there's a lot of excitement around it. People want to know what's next, what's next, what's next. But it sounds like you're really enjoying the ride, and uh, you should be. The New York Times gave this a very glowing review. Uh, the premise is that you should. Engage in your financial management in your family as if you're running a business. How, why did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that works? Um, well, I think, you know, one of the big challenges in today's environment is that there are so many disparate decisions that people have to make at, and to achieve financial security. It's education decisions, it's career decisions, it's investment decisions, it's insurance decisions. 
And what I found in, in my professional life is that many of the business concepts that I was working with uh, as a professional investor seem to apply to my family circumstances. And the thing that I think is so powerful about the Family Inc. model is it gives people a framework to connect all of these different decisions so that people can actually see your education choices and your professional choices have impacts on your risk profile and your needs for insurance, et cetera. So I, I was I was really um, intrigued by the way I could communicate how all of these decisions fit together. One of your big tips is to elect a member of the family to be the CFO, the chief financial officer. How do you know who's best fit for that role? Yeah, I, I don't think there are any set rules in terms of, you know, should it be the the father or the, the mother or the wife, the husband? It's more about who has the time and who has the aptitude. Um, and I think I would differentiate who's the CFO versus how decisions are made. So I think the CFO's job is to um, use this framework to help um, decide what the important decisions in life are that will dramatically impact your financial security. And then as a family, you make those decisions. And as you know, family decisions can be uh, complicated. And sometimes it's not even about the best financial decision. There are other things that play into those those uh, decisions. Emotions. <laughs> it, it, emotions, values, priorities, passions. And, and those are all fair, uh, fair parts of the conversation. Many couples enter a marriage with financial disparity, whether it's through income or even just their experiences. You know, one's a spender, one's a saver, one has perhaps uh, scarcity issues tied to money. Another person looks at money as this thing of abundance. So how do couples, how can couples find common ground when they arrive in a relationship with disparity around money? Boy, that's, I think that's a tough one, candidly. Um, I, I find that, you know, honest communication, um, you know, open discussion around these different value sets and an acknowledgement that a lot of these skills are not uh, skills that are readily required. But I think, you know, the journey to becoming a good family CFO um, is not something that happens quickly. I, I'm almost 50 and I feel like I'm still working at it. So, you know, I think just patience and acknowledging these are often tough subjects and, um you know, everybody brings both capabilities, but also these these value sets, which can be different. Totally. And I like how your book really outlines some of these best practices that get the job done. And sometimes a lot of the argument and a lot of the arguing and a lot of the um, the opposition uh, bruised from not knowing what steps to take, disagreement on steps. But you lay some really nice frameworks for couples and families to at least be able to accomplish what they need to accomplish and then move on. Like you say, have a cash reserve. It's the most important role of your financial assets is to have a, a cash reserve to buffer the family from unexpected setbacks like unemployment, which can happen to any member of the family. How much cash reserve do you recommend? You know, I'll answer that in the context of the family framework. I think it has to be evaluated in the context of how risky your jobs are um, and what the rest of your financial profile looks like. But in general, I think at an absolute minimum, it's three months. If you have a job that um, has a fair amount of risk to it and would be hard to replace that income for some folks, that could be up to a year. You arrived at this framework with years and years and years of experience, but also as somebody who uh, is a military vet, how did that play into your perspectives and your your advice around money and, and money management? Well, I think you know one of the one of the real motivations for the book is I first of all I think this is a huge national problem. Uh, I think it's only going to get worse in the context of what we see 
in the economy, the labor markets, and the investment markets. And so this is becoming a critical life skill in a way that it was not for maybe your parents or your grandparents. And so, you know, I found it ironic. I graduated um, from West Point with a Bachelor of Science degree in economics. I graduated from Harvard with a, a business degree with a focus on finance and never had a personal finance class with all that education. And so as a as a late 29, 30 year old you know, professional, I um, you know, kind of pursued my own journey of trying to figure this stuff out and really felt like there was not something in the marketplace that was rigorous, written for people um, that you know, were not professionals in the business and also holistic enough that I could actually apply it um, to my own personal situation. And so, um, you know, again, as I, as I endeavored on my professional career, I saw, saw a lot of overlap between um, the investments I was making and how we were managing companies and how I could apply that to my own personal situation. One of the calculations that you make in the book to determine a family's net worth is the value of their labor. What do you mean by that? Value of yeah. their labor. So, so I think I would say, I think the biggest law amongst most financial planning programs among the advice that many financial advisors give today is that they give it in regards to the financial assets that a family has. And I argue that for most families, the largest single asset we have is our labor. And that is an asset the same as, you know, stocks and bonds and, and other um, real estate are. And if you think about it in that framework, I think it really focuses people on where the key decisions can be made. So uh, for most of us, um, the surest way to uh, financial independence is by investing in ourselves through education and good choices around career. And I also think it has meaningful implications to how people think about risk. You know, I would argue a young person um, has can endure a lot more risk, not only because they have a much longer time horizon, but they also have this significant labor asset which in my view of the world looks a lot like an annuity or a bond. And so, you know, I think including labor assets, including social security assets really changes the game in terms of how people think about um, their financial choices. And, and just to give you a little definition around what the labor asset is, it's simply a view around you have so many years remaining in your professional life and you're making assumptions around how your income will change over time, what kind of tax, um, you know, burden you'll endure. And that gives you some kind of estimate around the value of that labor. And also perhaps how employable you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that gets back to, you know, education is certainly um, one of the best investments for most of us. Not only does it re result in higher income levels generally, it, it results in more employability. And I think one of the things that people really underestimate, education generally results in a longer ability to work. And as people um, live longer uh, in today's environment, I think that's increasingly important. You're going to see a lot less people retiring in their early 60s. And I think given the opportunity, we'll choose to work um, into the 70s. Oh, yeah. I'm, I completely agree. You touched a little bit on your background. I would love to go even further back to childhood. We talk about childhood a lot on this show. I'm sure you'd agree that our upbringings have so much to do with why we make the decisions that we do as adults, especially pertaining to money. And you, you, I read in your bio that your journey to achieving financial independence started at the age of seven. Yeah. What so happened my, at seven? Well, my dad was an educator. Um, and so he loved teaching. He also um, was uh, a stock investor as a hobby. And so I was exposed to him reading the Wall Street Journal and watching stock programs. 
And at a very early age, he took a sabbatical from teaching and we took a trip across country. And he told my brother and I that through this trip, we would have the opportunity to buy one stock from something we learned about on this trip. And so my brother um, invested in a company that owned um, Barnum and Bailey Brothers Circus. And I bought um, Homestake Gold Mining Company. And this was a real um, eye opener for me because at that point, stocks became not a piece of paper, uh, but I got to tour the Homestake Gold Mining Company. And I realized that I was becoming an owner in a very, very small way. Uh, of a real business that had employees and product and, and assets like this gold mine. And so that was a real exciting point for me. It, it began to, I began to appreciate um, what I was doing as a stock owner. Um, and, it, you know, I got lucky too. Uh, so this was in the seventies, inflation was uh, on a rampage and stock um, gold stocks performed very well. And so as a young person, I also convinced myself that I was good at this. So I've kind of had a, a love affair with the markets uh, ever since that time. And it was a great learning lesson for me and my father. Um, I do something similar with my kids today. Every, every year at Christmas, my kids and I uh, select a stock for their portfolio. And it's based on their interest, not on the quality of the investment. So we, we have things in the portfolio that they purchased like uh, Facebook and Chipotle and Google. And uh, it's a lot of fun as a way to um, find common ground with my kids about money matters. Although when it comes to your investing advice for families, it's not about stock picking necessarily, right? It's more about perhaps index funds or ETFs. Totally. I think the uh, the example I gave is a great way to educate. Um, but in the context of how I uh, recommend in managing the family capital, I'm a huge fan of passive investing um, with a big focus on long-term after inflation returns, I think that's best accomplished with a heavy, heavy equity exposure. All right. So you've had a pretty polished journey up till now as far as your money goes and people come to you for advice. But come on, there must have been a time when you made a financial boo-boo. Can you, can you tell us about it and what you learned? Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I'm, uh, not only has there been a time, there have been way too many times and I'm still making them. So um, I think good investors and good financial managers um, bring with them the humility of realizing, you know, there's always mistakes to be made here. Um, you know, I think my most humbling experience occurred shortly after graduating from Harvard. Um, I went directly from the army to business school at Harvard. And at that point had already had a family. So I was married with my first child. And over the course of the next two years, while I was getting a great experience and, and really benefiting from my investments in education, um, we, uh, racked up so much debt through school loans and consuming while we were up in Boston, which was much more expensive than I had anticipated. That by the time I graduated, I had to go find a family friend to loan me enough money to move my family to New York to work, to start work at Morgan Stanley and buy um, my first two suits. And so, you know, that was uh, very hard for me to, to go ask a family friend um, for support like that. And I think it, it also highlighted to me um, the importance of humility, and also that that these financial challenges can happen to anyone, no matter how hard you work, no matter how educated you are. And it kind of goes back to one of the things we talked about earlier. Um, the first step to financial security is um, ensuring you have an emergency fund or near-term liquidity. I think we all focus so much on wanting a secure retirement, but the number one way to get to a secure retirement is ensure you don't have a financial hardship or distress uh, in the near term. 
And so that that's a valuable lesson that stuck with me, um, you know, from from 20 years ago now. And a sort of unrelated question. I'm just curious, how did you get a book published? Um, many people listening <clears throat> consider themselves experts in their fields and their dream would be to write a book one day. How did you go about it? What was the first step? So um, I will tell you, but I'll also tell you, I think I did it absolutely wrong almost at every turn. <laughs> um, so first of all, I'm, I'm not a um, you know financial advisor by trade. I'm a professional investor and I'm working um, exclusively with institutions to manage their money. Um, but I, I found um, this need where I really believed I could have a positive impact on, on people through this Family Inc. approach. And so the first thing I did was I wrote the entire book um, by myself without getting input from a publisher, from anybody in the, in the industry. And I did that because I felt like I'd be my toughest critic and I wanted to make sure that I would be proud of the content. Um, and then I went out and tried to sell it. And, you know, most people would tell you it's much better to get um, input and market receptivity um, before you go write the book. Um, I did get a lot of input once I started sharing it with folks. And I think the general feedback was um, they liked the, the ideas and it was a novel approach. My writing style um, at that point was too textbooky. And so I've spent a lot of time getting it to publication by trying to make it more conversational, trying to make it more accessible uh, in a way that it would have a bigger impact on more people. The book deal was probably a very so money moment for you. What's another one? Um, so first of all, the book deal was not a so money moment. No. Um, any, anybody that any, anybody that writes a book, well, perhaps money. not financially, <laughs> but just you know, the accomplishment is so money. Yeah. No. Okay. I'll give you that. Um, yeah. So you know, first of all, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, investing. So there's lots of uh, so money moments. And I think the thing I would share with you is you also have to remember there's lots of so no money moments. Um, so right. lots of lots of lots of failures mixed in with those uh, successes. Um, but I, I see a trend that I think is worth um, highlighting, and that is that my best investments have been um, in myself, in my education, and in entrepreneurship in general. And and what I mean by that is you know I my one of my big pitches of the book is that the labor markets are very efficient, right? So if you're just out in the market trying to find a good job, you know, one in three people makes more than 65,000 in America today. You know, one in 20 people makes more than 150,000. So it's very competitive. At the same time, the public equity markets are very competitive. And if you look over the long term, you know, you're lucky to make 5% after inflation in the equity markets over the long term. And what I've found is by combining my labor and my capital, that's entrepreneurship, I can create much better returns on both of those assets. So uh, let's talk about my school for a second. I, I estimate that um, in terms of what I spend to go to school and the foregone income probably cost me about $200,000. And I believe I've earned that many times over um, given the opportunities I've had because of that schooling. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I decided to start my own money management business and with my partners put in my own capital and my own labor. And that's been very good um, returns for my labor and my capital. And my very best investments have been ones where I backed um, a professional or an entrepreneur to buy somebody else's business or to start their own business. And I've found that, you know, that combination of using your capital and your unique skills with your labor I can drive returns that are much better than I can when I separate those two activities. You got to be able to roll with the risks. You do. You do. Um, but I think a lot of people um, 
overestimate the risks and find, you know, they think startup and they think Facebook and Google, they think, you know, a massive amount of startup capital. And what I see in America today is most entrepreneurs are much less ambitious, but they also have taken much less risk. And in many cases, they've learned with OPM, other people's money, other people's dime, you know, in terms of you acquired some really good skills at your previous employer and then accumulated enough money that you could go pursue that, you know, a similar business on your own. So I generally think that entrepreneurship is, is um, not as risky as people presume. And now it's being taught in our generation, whereas two, three generations before ours, uh, it was something that you just, you, you learned through failure and um, not that there isn't failure today, but I think that you're right. The, the risk is being mitigated by other people's money and then also uh, the education that's out there around how to properly start a business. At least you're not going to make a lot of the simple mistakes that paid, perhaps people made over and over again 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of things in our economy to be worried about, um, you know, valuations, growth rates, deficits. But one of the things that I'm most excited about is this ecosystem that we've created in the United States, which encourages risk taking and entrepreneurship and teaching those skills and really defining um, failure as success in many cases, which I think is a really powerful um, way to think about um you know, how people um, allocate their labor. I, I often say in my investments, when I'm investing my capital, I'm a value investor because I can both lose and make money with my investment. When I think about investing my labor, I like to say that I'm a, a growth investor because I think um, when, you, when you pursue growth-oriented opportunities with your labor, you can create significant wealth. And if it doesn't work out so well, you take your experiences, you take your labor and you go put them somewhere else where you can try again. Right. It's not really a loss. It's more like a win-win. Well, yeah. as I'm talking to you, we just learned about Britain's decision to Brexit. What do you think? How do you think that's going to impact the global economy and particularly, you know, our portfolios in the short term? Should we be worried? Yeah. So, so I think there's the academic answer and then the practical answer. So the academic answer is yes, you should be worried and you should expect increasing volatility. Um, and then I say, so how does that affect Family Inc.? And I don't think it does because I think when you um, subscribe to the Family Inc. principles, you subscribe to a very long-term time horizon. And so this is a, a bump in the road and it's probably immaterial in the context of those long-term uh, financial independence retirement goals. Right. So don't know knee-jerk reactions. I actually think it's a good time to buy. Are, are you scooping up some beaten down shares? I'm, I'm always trying to buy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm, I feel like I'm a better buyer of specific businesses than I am timing the market. So I'm not a big market timing guy, but I think generally um, the desire to continue to stay invested, given how long my time horizon is till I'm likely to use that money. I think in the long run, that's a great bet. All right, cool. Last question here, Douglas, for you is your number one financial habit. What is it, what is something that you practice in your financial life that equates to greater wealth and security for your family? Um, once a quarter, I look at a balance sheet, and that's the family balance sheet. And for me, you know, there's lots of different ways to you know monitor your budget and you know see if you're on track. But if I just simply look at my balance sheet this quarter versus last quarter. Um, that tells me some very valuable things. It tells me, is my net worth growing or shrinking? 
Um, it forces me to lay out my assets and, and kind of convince myself that I'm appropriately allocated. And it also forces me to lay out my liabilities and make sure that I've adequately, you know, kind of planned for those and, and thought about the appropriate trade-offs between interest rate and maturity dates and things like that. So um, once, once a quarter, um, look at the family balance sheet. And I think that gives me a good view of if I'm heading in the right direction in terms of my own um, retirement goals. And this balance sheet that you speak of, along with calculators and other tools available at familyinc.com, if anyone listening wants to follow in Douglas's footsteps and start running their family like a business, that's a great place to start. Thank you so much. And congrats again on your book, even though you don't call it a so money moment. I think I, think I will. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I appreciate the vote of confidence and uh, thanks for the time. It's a lot of fun. A wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Douglas McCormick, his website is familyinc.com. And there you can get some of those customized calculators, income sheets, analytics, familyinc.com. And Douglas is on Twitter at Doug underscore McCormick. If you missed any of this, you want the transcript, download the audio, leave a comment, go to somoneypodcast.com. And of course, while you're there and you've got a question for me, very simple, click on Ask Farnoosh and that will connect us for an upcoming episode of Ask Farnoosh. Every Friday, I turn the tables and answer your questions. Thanks again for tuning in and I hope your day is so money. Money.